anyone who's previously run a McDonald's, like a junior manager, manager, or a Starbucks, sometimes if they've run a bank and sometimes if they've run a call center, anyone who's managed those type of operations can run any business up to about $5 million a year. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Daniel Priestley. Daniel's a showman, a visionary, a speaker, an author, and he's willed a number of multi-million pound businesses into existence from nothing. He's written a few cracking business books, Key Person of Influence, Oversubscribed and 24 Assets. He's co-founded Dent Global. And every year he sees probably about 3,000 businesses globally that are interested in joining one of his incubator programs. Not the tech incubator programs famed in Silicon Valley, but more the type of business startups run by somebody in their 40s who spent 20 years in industry who now has an idea and the knowledge and the network to create a business and to create a better lives for themselves. So we talk about that, the motivation behind his business and the people who come to him for help. We talk about his hack. Towards the end of our conversation, we have he's got a great hack for creating purpose in a business. So many people start a business because they need the money or because they don't want to work for anybody anymore. But ultimately, they feel that their business lacks a soul. And so they go looking for purpose. And Daniel's got some great tips on how to pull something out of nothing and fill that void. The interview goes on for longer than normal because we end up having a great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as we did. Uh, I'm Daniel Priestley. I'm an entrepreneur and an author. I started my very first company when I was 21 and I grew it in Australia. I then exited that business and started what is now Dent Accelerators. We run entrepreneur accelerators all over the world with about 3,000 companies to help them to stand out, scale up, and make a big dent in the universe. And what was your business called before it became Dent? Uh, my first company was called Triumphant Events. So we were an events business. We, 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 we handled event marketing and event roadshows. In particular, we specialized in rolling out franchises. So uh, when a franchisor wanted to put franchisees all over the country, we would do a rollout to find, attract uh, franchisees um, all over Australia. Um, And the breakthrough moment was when we partnered with the franchises to massively reduce our fees, increase our risk, and take a percentage of their their franchise upside. And uh, and that's actually how I, you know, how I built my first company. So just on upside, upside risk? Yeah, just on the, well, like one of the franchises that we worked with in its entire history, it had sold a million dollars worth of franchises. And then in one year, we sold over $10 million worth of franchises. Okay. So your so their their perception of what a great year would be and what you delivered were 
totally yeah they they so the first insight that i had around franchises is that most of them go to the franchise show to try and sell a franchise and i personally had walked through the franchise show my experience as an individual was to look at 300 different opportunities and become totally overwhelmed and feel a that almost if you imagine that you're uh, on the dating scene and you go dating and you walk around and meet 300 different potential partners and suddenly all of their uniqueness and their attributes and all of that sort of stuff disappear and you just feel like spoiled for choice and you can't make any decision. And then because I'd run events in the past, I thought the way this should work is that you should actually just have one franchise and attract 60, 70, 80, 100 people to come and see a two-hour presentation and that there's one franchise on offer and there's 200 people who want it. And then that's how people get excited about something. You know, Apple don't go to shows and put their computers alongside hundreds of other computers. They create Macworld and everyone gets excited about their particular product in that in that moment. So I, I went to a franchise that did stand out to me a little bit in that um, in that show and I said, I think I've got a better way for you to sell franchises. And he said, oh, how do you think that is? I said, rather than you being here and being side by side with 300 competitors, I think we should actually do roadshows where you're the only option and we actually get 50 to 150 people per night to come along to an introduction and they're just evaluating you versus it, you versus whatever they're currently doing. Um, as opposed to you versus 300 other franchises. And he said, well, you know, if you're willing to take the risk on that idea, it was actually a really funny conversation because he said, you seem pretty confident, but I don't know anything about that. So if you're willing to take the risk, I'll give you a percentage of the upside. I said, okay, what does that look like? Basically, he said, well, you know, we expect to sell a million dollars worth of franchises this year. We'll spend about 15% of our fees on exhibiting and, and doing shows. So on the first million dollars, we'll pay you 15%. And then on the second million dollars, we'll pay you 40%. And then on the next after that, if you can do more than 2 million a year, then you'll get uh, the vast majority. <laughs> if only he'd known then what he knew, what he knew later. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why, that's why they exited this. Basically, that's why we, uh, we ended up getting out of the company. They realized that they um, had, a, had a contract with us that we'd shown them the potential of what they could do. And so when did that, uh, when did you end up, leave that business? 2005, six. Okay. And when did you start then global? Uh, 2010. So I actually brought triumphant events into the UK. I realized in 2006, I didn't even really have a word for entrepreneurship or wasn't focused on entrepreneurship. I was very passionate about marketing in uh, in my early years in business and I was very much I thought of myself as a marketer um, if you had have said what, I, what what did I want to do in the early days it was I want to be an expert marketer and uh, I was interested in marketing things so I kind of evolved into a passion for entrepreneurship and started reading a lot of entrepreneur books and I started becoming very passionate and following um, Steve Jobs's journey because he at the time had really rocketed ahead with Apple and was doing really well with the iPod and he was doing the amazing talks about the total transformation of Apple and it was like this journey that was unfolding where Steve Jobs would get up on stage and reveal something else and reveal something else and I was very excited by Steve Jobs and that journey. So I thought to myself, I want to showcase more entrepreneurs. I want to showcase entrepreneurial success. 
So uh, I essentially found people that I, I was passionate about or fa- interested in their books, and I would book them to speak in London. And uh, I'd bring in speakers from around the world to come and speak in London. And in one point, like in our first year, actually, we had two and a half thousand people at the London Palladium Theatre um, seeing four entrepreneurs giving talks on a uh, West End musical uh, stage. And uh, it, was, it was just awesome. Um, so we did lots of that, but it wasn't really a business because when the GFC hit, what happened is that my business just went from four million pounds a year down to four hundred thousand pounds a year. Most of that was collections, and uh, and basically, I realised through a mentor, uh, a business coach, actually, I realised that I didn't actually own an asset. Darren Sherlaw. Yeah, it was Darren. Darren said to me, um, "The reason your business is being hit so hard is you don't own the asset. You you're a brokerage model business." And I realized actually that sales and marketing is, if that's all you do, you are a broker. So it was around that time that I was also thinking, well, I want to do something more meaningful, more impactful. I want to own more of the journey anyway. I don't just want to put on one exciting intervention, one exciting event. I want to have a relationship that goes a long way with people. I want to see people over three, five, ten years and see where they get to after that amount of time. And so this idea was born to become an entrepreneur accelerator? Yeah, so I started doing a bit of research and I, I found that this idea already existed. And the idea was in Silicon Valley, there was this thing called Y Combinator. The concept was pretty simple. You take 22-year-olds who are, who are good with technology, who can code, and you basically tell them that they have to create some sort of an app that works on a smartphone and 4G and GPS. And you give them these parameters that they've got to, in some way, create something that 10 million people are going to use. And um, uh, Y Combinator would take a 7% stake um, in the company in exchange for three months internship, a pitch demo day, and a desk. And it was just amazing. They took 7% of Dropbox and Evernote and you know all of these different companies. Now, my whole background had been working with entrepreneurs uh, for several years. And the one thing that stood out to me is that very, very, very few of them are 22-year-olds. My own personal experience had actually said that most entrepreneurs have been in their industry as an employee for 15 years before they then get the confidence and the skills and the connections to start a company. Most entrepreneurs are around 40 when they start, and most people who achieve an exit are typically in their early 50s. So I was seeing a lot of people who had sold their company for tens of millions and they were the typical profile is someone who's like 53. They started when they were 30, 38 and uh, they, you know, they spent 15 years in industry, 15 years building a company and they exit for 25 million. They split it with a few partners and investors and pay off some debts and then they're left with, you know, sort of 10 million. That's your classic post-exit entrepreneur. Very few, very few of them look like Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> In any way. In any way. And, and and also, most of them don't have a tech background. Most of them have a marketing background or a sales background or a finance background. Essentially, I said, what if I create an accelerator, uh, not for 22-year-olds who can code, but 45-year-olds with technical skills and marketing experience, people who sell professional services, people who want to be you know, building a much more of a lifestyle business than a unicorn. And are you, are you now, you're Australia, UK, are you in the US as well? 
Um, I live in London. Uh, we have an office in Sydney. We have an office in Toronto. Our, US, our North American office used to be in Florida, um, and we moved it up to Toronto. Okay. Is your you run accelerators in in English across the world, really? Yeah. So we have uh, basically a global client base of three thousand entrepreneurs. Uh, we have an early stage accelerator that is about getting that first, call it 100,000 US or 80,000 pounds worth of revenue. We call that proof of concept or in our language, we call it crossing the threshold from being a self-employed person to having the makings of a business. We have a methodology called chaos, which is concept audience offer sales. Uh, so we say great companies arise up out of chaos, which is a good concept to the right audience, packaged up as the right offer, sold effectively. Um, so that's the first value foundations. Um, and then we then say that after you have a value proposition, you have to become, uh, in your language, chief evangelist or you know the chief salesperson of the business. Uh, in our language, you have to become the key person of influence. So you have to become the person who can mobilize outcomes, mobilize, very rapidly mobilize partnerships, mobilize employees joining the company. Uh, so you have to be good at pitching. You have to put stuff in published content forms. Uh, you have to have a, a decent product ecosystem and evolve the product rapidly. Uh, you've got to uh, raise your profile and the profile of the business, and you've got to go out and do partnerships and joint ventures. So we call those the five Ps. That's the first two major milestones of having a business. Essentially, the value proposition stacks up and that you become a person who can mobilize people. Now, after that, we have something called Better Every Quarter, and better every quarter is about um, proprietary assets, a performance team, and recurring revenues or predictable profits. And uh, from experience, I know that the reason companies get sold uh, or bought is because of those three things. So eventually, eventually you are judged on, do you have recurring revenue? Do you have a proprietary asset? Do you have a team that will stick around and run the business well? And if ever you want a really big exit, you need to have 40 plus people. Uh, you need to have uh, a million of predictable profit per year. Uh, and you need to have a few, what I'd call secret source assets, special assets that are very hard to achieve, hard to copy assets. If you've got those three things, that is basically the recipe for a whopping big exit. So you've got, here you've got a cookbook, right? This is uh, Daniel Priestley's. The world according to Daniel, yeah. Totally. Um, is it just about then about the attitude of, of the person who picks up the cookbook? Because, you know, the world isn't short of cookbooks or gyms, but there are still some poorly fed, unfit people in the world. And so I guess people come knocking on your door saying, give me your cookbook. That's all I need. And, and what proportion of people do you think succeed? So the vast majority of entrepreneurs, this is other, another key insight that is missed by most accelerators or deliberately ignored or deliberately worked around. But the vast majority of entrepreneurs don't actually want a big exit. So I've just given you the formula for a big exit that nobody wants. So if I were to actually talk like like this, the vast majority of tennis players don't actually want to win Wimbledon or, or even play professionally. What they want to do is play tennis and enjoy tennis. So when I look at most entrepreneurs, what they're actually looking for is what I would describe as a lifestyle business. They want fun, freedom, flexibility, um, a really healthy income and not a lot of demands or a high degree of creative freedom. And um, I would say that's something like 75, 80% of all entrepreneurs. If I said to them, in order to get your exit, you have to build a business that has at least 40 employees, 
most of them say, yeah, I don't even want four or four or five. <laughs> <you know. laughs> and you know what? I don't think there's there's nothing the matter with having a profitable lifestyle business. I think there's nothing more miserable. There's there's nothing more miserable than having an unprofitable lifestyle business. But profitable lifestyle businesses are fantastic. And I was just going to think about the, you know, almost the uh, antithesis of the Silicon Valley exit model is the sort of the family-run German businesses where there isn't an idea to have an exit, but it's like just become world-class. Become world-class, create a great place to work, create something that your family is proud of, uh, become world-class at it and own the, own a niche and don't worry about getting much bigger. So I would say most of our clients that's exactly what they want. They want to be really good at something. They want to become more of a go-to brand rather than aggressively targeting any market. And uh, they want to have their own, their own thousand clients uh, who, uh, who pay a thousand each type thing. They make a million bucks a year. You know, they've got fairly minimal overheads. They, they have uh, healthy income. You know, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of our clients. They want the lifestyle boutique. Yeah. And that's fantastic. And what proportion... I mean, I guess you look at it all the time and go, how could we be more successful in helping the people who come through the door get there? What, what is it that stops people getting there? It's a little bit unfair, but the first stage of the journey, that value proposition, that's actually a lot harder than anything else. So if I've got someone who, let's say someone comes to me and they've got 200 grand a year worth of business, I could almost bet my house on the fact that I can get them up to 800 grand. So there's really not a hard, it's not a hard slog to go from 200 to 800 because at 200,000 a year, you've got a, you've got a value proposition that is proven. You've got a market that likes it, that comes back and that recommends it. You've got a couple of employees who are helping and supporting. So around that, a lot has been proven in the same way that a, um, a plane, if you can get a plane to fly two miles, you can probably get it to fly eight miles uh, with a few tweaks. The really hard thing is getting something to take off in the first place. So it's deeply unfair, but one of the hardest phases of business is the first hundred grand. Yeah, that fine. So once you've got people past that, then you've got someone that'll work. Yeah. So if, if you said to me, what's the success rate? Well, the success rate is low on the first hundred grand and really high on six, low six figures to high six figures or six figures to seven figures. Not terribly hard. Nowhere near as hard. And then in terms of did they, your sort of key books, the key person of influence and 24 assets, do they, is key person of influence, is that, is that stage one or is that stage two? So the entrepreneur journey is, uh, imagine like, uh, I love, I love analogies, right? So the gears in the car, first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, and in between the gears, you've got to rev the engine high enough to change gears. So if you try and start in fourth gear, you will stall the engine. So the first gear is value proposition. So can I actually sell something? And you've he heard about like lean startup. And he's the key takeaway from that book is don't try and build anything if you can't sell it. So he basically says, put together a brochure, walk down onto the high street, not that you can do that right this minute, but you know, go, <laughs> go online, set up a landing page, run some ads and see if people are interested. So, you know, if you've come up with, uh, if you've come up with a, an idea for a new comb, you know, set up a landing page. Don't try and go to a comb factory and see if you can have it manufactured. Set up a landing page, see if you can sell a few and whether you can sell it at a price point that's profitable. And, you know, if you can, great. 
Uh, if not, then it's cost you very, very little to find that out. So that's value proposition creation. The influencer proposition is the next one. And then there's this thing in the middle, which is about campaigning and promotions. And that's the revving the engine. So running a campaign, running promotions, and going out and doing launch events, launch campaigns, uh, that sales and market, the, the kind of like really energized sales and marketing approach. And then you rev the engines up. And then once you get enough money and enough activity happening in your business, that's when you formalize your assets, build your team, and figure out how your predictable revenues, see if you can lock in some recurring revenues um, or predictable predictable profits. So it's kind of like that four-stage journey, which follows the books. Entrepreneur Revolution is about starting a business. Key person of influence is becoming the type of person who can mobilize a result. Oversubscribed is campaigning. 24 assets is formalization of asset. In the 24 assets, is there a is there one or two of those assets that you think people just often miss but are i don't know maybe because it's difficult to conceptualize or it's hard to do but have a sort of a significant impact yeah so every business should have two assets that are almost the standalone core of the business that is what you dominate at so amazon is dominates at systems they are a systems business whereas uh, nike actually most people think it dominates a brand but the reason it grew is because it dominated at finance. It was run by an accountant. Phil Knight was an accountant who had the ability to refinance and refinance and refinance. His special magic formula was to fund the growth and no one else could fund the growth. And Shoe Dog is a, is a fantastic read. It's an awesome book. And you could just like so many times by the skin of his teeth, he pulls it off. But you know, like one minute to midnight, he's dead and buried and then he's back and running. Exactly. And you can actually see in that book that the big reveal, the big reveal of that book is that it was an accountant, the Wizard of Oz, you pull back the curtain, and it was an accountant all along. And that's the big reveal of Shoe Dog, right? And what you realize about that book is that had he not been a professor in accounting or a lecturer in accounting, someone who had a very detailed finance background, then Nike could never have existed because it was a finance-hungry business. It was a funding problem more than anything else. And right up until the IPO, where he had that all sorted, he was refinancing the company almost every quarter. And every other competitor that he had dropped off because they couldn't get funding. So uh, it's different for every business. Every business has a particular strength, a unique thing that uh, you know was their thing. Um, for Apple, it's always been about getting the product right. Um, and having an amazing product. And when you've got the product right and the, the product and the brand, then everything else comes together. The ones that businesses often overlook is intellectual property. They don't recognize the value of the creation and ownership of their IP. And then the other one is culture. They don't build a culture from the start. If they intend to scale, one of the things that's uh, mathematically certain is that once you hit about 10 to 12 people, you hit a level of complexity, you hit exponential complexity. All people are complex, and the more people you have involved in a project, the complexity goes exponential from about 10, 12 people onwards. And then you add territories, markets, and products, and you add a lot more complexity. And essentially, the thing that the glue that holds all that complexity together and keeps the complexity curve down is culture, culture and systems. 
So if you don't invest in culture and systems early, you almost can never get past about 12 people. Or if you do, you do so at a lower margin. Yeah. And then that complexity makes it harder for you to retrofit. Uh, yeah, exactly. You, you, you have so many entrepreneurs who at about 3 million a year and 17 employees, they're fantasizing about what it would be like to start from scratch. <laughs> well, because there's a point at which the entrepreneur has to realize that they need a team. And there's a point beyond that, which that whatever is their functional skill, they do eventually need to hire somebody who's better at it than they are. And and so the ego is actually the thing that gets in the way or this belief that you still need to be a generalist and you need to be involved everywhere. Sometimes it's loyalty. So there's a real problem that uh, entrepreneurs face, that the type of people who will be the first five in a company are misfits. They're a ragtag bunch of misfits. If you're willing to join a company of, say, five, six, seven people or less, you are in some way a misfit. So you might be very, very young and passionate, but very low experience. So you get people who are university dropouts or people who didn't get great grades um, and they join early stage companies. You get mothers who are on maternity leave and they're happy to do four hours in the middle of the day and they jo join as early stage employees of companies. Uh, you get people who, for whatever reason, just hate authority and they don't want they don't want to work in a big company because they're just not good with dealing with rules and structures, and they'll, they'll join early-stage companies. So this dichotomy is that the first five to join the company are a bunch of rebels and misfits, and they get along really, really well. They don't need much management. They don't need much direction. But then by the time you hit to 10 people, you've begun this weird thing where you hire based on a CV. So the 10th person is almost always hired from a pile of CVs where you're now hiring someone who went to university, got a qualification, and has had some form of experience in the marketplace. And now you've got five people who don't fit with society, and you've got five people who have progressively become the types who are experienced and do fit with society. And this becomes, by about 15, you actually have two teams. You have the, the team that are built to go to 50 plus, they're, they're actually gonna build a company and they're very good. And then you've got the original crew, the six or seven who were there at the start, who secretly, they wanna sabotage the company because they wanna see it go back to the good old days where we all hung out and had pizzas and chats. Yes, I'm one of those people who loves to hire those first, you know, those first 10 social misfits. What fun that is. That is it, right? And this is the dichotomy of being an entrepreneur. It's not so much even ego or any of that sort of stuff. Most entrepreneurs are in some way a bit of a misfit and they hire misfits. And many entrepreneurs also hate rules and hate authority and they don't want to be the boss. You know, they left because they didn't like bosses and structures and that's why they left their last company. And now everyone's around them saying, guys, we need some bosses and structures in here. Yes. Well, you know, and you definitely need people who do implementation. You definitely need the execution experts. You know, for every CEO, there'll be a COO. And that's absolutely vital. The The thing that I find, oh, I don't know, traumatic or sad often is that those, you know, five to 10 early misfits, as the organization starts to specialize, you know, you had a guy who was great at pre-sales and sales, 
but he's now not quite good enough to do sales or pre-sales as a standalone job. And it's that, it's that loyalty. You know, uh, Fred was here at the beginning. He, you know, he worked for next to no money for the first two years. He brought in the first couple of hundred grand. Like we wouldn't even exist without Fred. Yeah. And sometimes I've seen it work really well where uh, one CEO recently exited who I knew and one of his original founders, you know, he would really have liked this guy to have been his sales director. But this guy just could never be the sales director. So when the business when the business exited, he was still a sales guy. Like he was a shareholder, one of the founders, and he was a sales guy. He'd had the business had had the sense to keep him in a job he could do and do well, rather than over promote him and then fire him. Because that's the other mistake that people make. You know, the first coder becomes head of engineering, and then gets fired, and that's even sadder. Exactly as you said, the first people are generalists. I love the term Swiss army knife, right? Actually, I have one on my desk, right? (laughs) A Swiss army knife is okay at 25 things. It can do 25 things badly or or well enough to get by. And that's the first, that's typically the first five to 10 people that they are Swiss army knives. They can do 25 things badly, uh, well enough to get by. But, you know, for example, if you look at, you know, Swiss army knife's little saw, as soon as you recognize that you actually need to saw things on a regular basis, <laughs> you're not going to use this uh, little silly saw any longer. So it loses its value real fast as soon as you've got the money to go and buy a saw. So uh, this is what happens in, in companies. And the perfect example of this is, is Steve Wozniak. Steve Wozniak uh, was an amazing person for Steve Jobs to start Apple with. But the guy had such self-awareness that he recognized he was a middle-of-the-rung engineer within Apple and he loved being a middle-of-the-rung engineer in Apple. So, you know, he ended up being worth $250 million and working a, uh, a middle engineer job. And he said, that's where I'm happiest. That's where I'm, that's where I'm best placed. There are specialists who are better than me, but I'm, I'm really happy here down in the lunchroom with the, with the other engineers. Yeah. And it's it's that self awareness, both for the CEO and the people on the team, and and then having having difficult conversations, and a lot of people find having difficult conversations um, something that they avoid. And the self awareness for the entrepreneur is that you're probably not the leader you think you are. <laughs> yeah, and you're probably definitely not the manager you think you are. I do pride myself on being aware of this, that I never go into our office ever. Um, like even though we're self-isolating at the moment, I might go into the office once every three months uh, because I employ all these people to do a really great job. And I have this sick compulsion to distract people from their work. <laughs> if I see someone who's working diligently, like they're really focused, there's this one person on the team, Krizia, and she is so amazing at focusing. She puts her headphones on and she's got her glasses on and she's like really in the zone doing the work technically just executing something about seeing her so focused and working annoys me and i have to, <laughs> I have to pull her out of it and i i'll distract her and i'll and i'll talk to her about the big vision of the company or some bullshit and then she's like yeah yeah dan i i get the big vision of the company can i please just get back to the deadline that i'm working towards and i'm like Something about me wants to say no. So you just keep yourself out of people's way. Yeah. I, my general manager, who is an amazing general manager, 
you know, we have an agreement about, Dan, you can come into the office like once a quarter for a few hours and that's it. And I'll, stru- I'll structure what you do there. Other than that, be up on a stage, go write a book, you know, create some software, go make new shit and then run it by me and think it's good. But that creation of IP is your superpower. Yeah, exactly. And you love doing it. So you wouldn't find anyone else to do it better. No, and talk to entrepreneurs. Like go, go out and talk to entrepreneurs, tell stories, be on stage, do podcasts. All of that stuff is my wheelhouse. And it also it works with my personality. I'm not a manager. I hate seeing structured things working. <laughs> but I see that so often where people don't have that self-awareness and they feel that they have to keep doing it. And so they're just really shit at it. And they're, they're in their own way. And if they would just hire somebody to be their yin, their yin to their yang, they'd, they'd be off at the races. Oh, they, w- they really would. And also these people are not, they're not 200 grand a year type people. I'll give you a hot tip, a really hot tip. Anyone who's previously run a McDonald's, like a junior manager, manager, or a Starbucks, sometimes if they've run a bank and sometimes if they've run a call center, Anyone who's managed those type of operations can run any business up to about $5 million a year. And their background was getting paid thirty, forty thousand $40,000 to do it. So you're talking about if you can find yourself a McDonald's manager who previously got 33000 a year and you can pay them 36000 a year to come and run your business, it's almost a given that whatever your business is, they'll run it better than you. Well, it's funny. I remember talking to the guy who ran HR for McDonald's Republic of Ireland, and he was telling me that how they ended up hiring their store managers. They realized that McDonald's was only as good as the store managers it could put in place and that they couldn't attract good people, enough good people. So they went and thought about it and they said, okay, our target customer, our target recruit for store manager is the smartest kid who got no qualifications at school. So, you know, was was smart, but just dicked around all the way through school. And now they've hit their early 20s and they realize that they, they've grown up and they're thinking, what do I do with the rest of my life? I haven't gone to university. And it was like that person, give them a three-year education in running a store. They're going to come in, they're going to do three years tour of duty, and then they're out. But we will have then transformed their lives. And he said that became their purpose or their mission. And strangely, that's actually the general manager. Because what you want with a general manager is not necessarily someone who's technically good at anything. You want someone who's good at running a tight ship. And um, that B student, what you're describing there is the B student who didn't get an A in anything. They got Bs in most things, you know, and they got along with everyone. They were likable. They were clearly smart. They were likable, but not actually a specialist in anything. That's a great general manager type. Um, And, you know, those people hold together companies. They're the glue. You know, that's my general manager. So I've got about seven companies. Each one has uh, a general manager in there, and then we have a group general manager. Most of them are actually not necessarily technically good at much. They're just good at running a business. And my my hunch has always been if you can run a coffee shop like a Starbucks. Starbucks, by the way, spends more money each year on training than they do on coffee beans. So they are one of the world's biggest trainers. McDonald's is nearly the same. They have McDonald's University. They've figured out every system going and they leverage everything going. And you pick up anyone who's ex-Starbucks or ex-McDonald's, they'll take your business up to a couple of million a year without batting an eyelid. Can I pick your brains on your sort of how do you help entrepreneurs identify their purpose? Yeah. Because I think you've got a – it's one of these things where often I find people struggle 
you know, they started a business, they needed a job, they were unemployable. And now they're, now they're doing okay, they're making enough money, but they think there's got to be more to this. How do I create a purpose? And they could go and do a yoga retreat, I guess, but uh, you've, got a, you've got a cunning shortcut. Yeah, so you're right. Secretly, most people start a company hoping to work less and earn more. And that's basically the purpose. You know, uh, they have kids and they realize that they want to be at home a bit more and uh, and they get sick of putting on the, sh- the shirt and tie and all that sort of stuff or the dress, right? And they, they love the idea of just a bit more f- flexibility, creative freedom, but earning more and working less. So <laughs> when you actually achieve that, you realize, wow, actually, I really, I need to, I need something that switches on the energy centers for me. Like I've got to have something that gets the energy flowing. We've all experienced what it's like when you have energy and that that uh, moment where you sit up until 3 o'clock in the morning writing and uh, you go to bed because you have to because you look at your watch and go, wow, it's 3 o'clock, I need to go to bed. You lay in bed thinking about the thing, you sleep four or five hours and then you bounce out of bed in the morning and you you know, you know get onto it. And it's those magical moments that build great companies. It's that when the energy is flowing, you can achieve more in a few hours. I've, I've, I've had experiences myself where I've done more in a week when the energy is flowing than in months when the energy is not flowing. So the trick with purpose is that it needs to turn on the energy for everyone, uh, all the people in the company. So everyone goes, everyone goes out looking for this and uh, they spend 20 grand going to the Tony Robbins Fiji retreat or they go to an ashram in India or they go on a long surfing trip down the coast of Australia or something like that, looking for purpose. And I noticed that everyone arrives at the same answer. After doing deep, profound work, you arrive at the answer that you want to serve others. So you come to this conclusion and you say, okay, my my purpose in life is to serve others, serve other people, and serve the planet. And you lose yourself, right? Because purpose is this moment of losing yourself. Your own attributes don't matter anymore. Your own health and safety is not your concern. You're interested in how you can serve others. So then as soon as you get to that, you go, well, how can you serve others? And the cool thing is, is that the United Nations created a framework called the UN Global Goals. There's 17 of them. This is what the world needs us to go do. So the UN has basically said, these are the big problems. Can everyone please go fix these? This is our big hierarchy of um, of problems that, that need solving. Uh, 16 of them are things that need to happen in the world. And one of them is basically getting others involved in doing this. Uh, when you think about it like that, it's like, okay, well, if your purpose is to serve others and we all come to that conclusion, then there's here's 16 really good ways to go and do that. Pick one. And uh, I like to get people to pick two. And I say, pick one for your head and one for your heart. So the one for the head is it matches your brand. If you're a training company, then you know the goal around education is a great one. If you're a health company, goal three is good health. You know, if your business is business coaching, good jobs and economic growth is actually one of the goals. So you could actually make that. So that was that would be a good alignment to the head. And then one for the heart, which is something that really tugs your heartstrings. And you say, that is an atrocity that we're not doing enough with that. And I have to do something with that. So you might say, it's absolutely atrocious that 700 million people do not have access to clean water and are forced to either drink disgusting water or walk five to ten miles to get clean water and i want to do something about that i want to raise money for that i want to figure a way of solving that Um, or you might say i just it really angers me how much plastic ends up in the oceans i want to find a way to to try and curb that and if you can then 
find one for the head, one for the heart, uh, there's always an intersection between the two. There's always this intersection where you can say, okay, here's what we're going to do for the head and here's what we're going to do for the heart. Or sometimes you find a project that actually merges the two and it's like, wow. you know. And then, bang, the energy starts flowing. You start talking to your team about it and they go, they go, wow, that's cool. If our company did that, then that would be really cool. So it's kind of like this. In the West, we fall in love with someone and then see if the relationship will work. In India, they have an arranged marriage where they say, here's who you're going to marry. Here's your options. They say, here's, your, here's the 10 girls that you might marry. Which one do you like? And then they arrange the marriage. You get married and then you have to fall in love. And my method for purpose is the arranged marriage method. It's basically... Here's the 16 different purposes. Pick one and fall in, go fall in love with it. And, uh, yeah, make it your own. Find a way to make it your own. Develop the relationship with that goal. And let's get on with doing something rather than navel-gazing. Let's actually let's get on with and trust that there's millions of other people out there who are working on the other global goals. You know, So if you're part of, if you're part of a community where you can see other people doing other things, then you can relax about the whole world needing to change. You can just focus on your thing. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. I think that's a fantastic, it'll take a lot of pain and misery out of finding purpose for people. It'll also take a lot of the fun out of it. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, stop, don't stop surfing down the coast of Australia just because you yeah, found your purpose. I just killed you yoga retreat in a bush. <laughs> what is it you know now that you, uh, you wish you'd known at some other point? The big problems and big businesses are actually just as hard as small problems and small businesses. So as soon as you've got something that's big, in some strange ways, it's actually easier to mobilize people around something big than small. If I want to do something incremental, it's going to be very hard to get a talented person to come and work on that with me. If I want to do something transformational, provided it's plausible, it's going to be very easy to get good people involved and money involved and all those kind of things. So mobilizing resources becomes easier when you tackle big problems, big and meaningful problems rather than small and insignificant problems. So what I wish I had have known earlier is that the sooner you can get to solving a big, meaningful problem in the world, the easier it is to mobilize resources. You'll actually have a more fun and more easy life than vice versa. Now, what most people think is they think if I start with something small and insignificant, then one day I'll become a millionaire. Once I become a millionaire, then I can pick something big and meaningful to go do in the world. And actually, if you pick something that's big and meaningful in the world, you'll it'll be much quicker to go be a millionaire anyway, and you'll have a lot more fun along the way. Okay, fantastic. And notwithstanding the books that uh, that you've written, uh, what are they? You've got uh, Entrepreneur Revolution, KPI, Key Person of Influence, Oversubscribe. 24 assets you must be working on a new one i'm halfway through writing a book called doubling speed which is about how to get business to consistently double but currently doubling speed is now associated with coronavirus so i'm uh, i'm rethinking that one rethinking the title okay what books would you recommend people read that you've read along the way the real question on that is people ask you know what book changes your life what book is meaningful and and massively impacts you and I, I mean, I love books. I love reading books. And there's so many books that have genuinely changed the course of my life. But I'll answer that question in a different way, which is that the book that changes your life the most is not one you read. It's one that you write uh, because the writing process forces you to acknowledge your own value. 
and it forces you to go mining and digging into your story, your experience. Uh, it forces you to go and remember that thing that was actually quite an interesting project that you worked on a few years ago that worked out really well in the end and won an award, but you've never really unpacked it and you've never really written it down. Uh, it forces you to think about how you would explain your value to, to, to someone at a distance, someone who's on the other side of the world reading the book. So it's the process of creating intellectual property. It's the process of acknowledging your own value. Uh, it's the process of putting it into a scalable format. Um, so the book that changes your life on many fronts is actually the book that you write. And I would really encourage people, stop reading so many damn books and start writing. Just write one. Work on the assumption you've, re- you've learned enough. Start putting it into your own book. Daniel, that's brilliant. It's been fantastic talking to you this morning. Thank you for your time. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.